I would like to take this opportunity for us to walk a while with Jesus as he spent time at the southern end of the Jordan Valley in the hill country of Judea. For we've chosen to take our remarks from Mark's Gospel and chapter 10. You may wish to have that chapter handy. Jesus is not far from Jerusalem and his final conflict that we have come to remember. Wherever Jesus went, the crowds flocked to see and to hear him. Matthew adds, he healed them. His cures were used to confirm and authenticate his doctrine. Such is the fullness of the divine record that we can learn. And such, sadly, our forgetfulness that we need to be reminded of the things that we have been taught. So, Mark chapter 10 and the first 12 verses. Leaving there, Jesus came into the hill country of Judea and to the district across the Jordan. And once again the crowds came together to him. As his custom was, he again continued to teach them. Well, sadly, Jesus' adversaries were always keen to discredit Jesus and were never far from him. Sure enough, the Pharisees came with a question. This time it was about divorce, a subject that had divided the Pharisees broadly into two opinions. There may have been more than one motive behind their question. It may be that some honestly wished for Jesus' opinion on it. They may have wished to test his orthodoxy. Jesus had already had something to say on this matter. And this is recorded in Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 to 32, which shows Jesus speaking about marriage and remarriage. It may be that these Pharisees had the hope that he might contradict himself and entangle himself in his own words. He may also may be that they knew how he would answer and would wish to involve him in enmity with Herod who had in fact divorced his wife and married another. But Jesus was keenly aware of this, as it had precipitated the murder of John the Baptist. It may well be that they wished to hear Jesus contradict the law of Moses, and therefore to formulate a charge of heresy against him. But one thing is certain. The question they asked Jesus was not simply an academic one of interest only to the rabbinic schools. It was a question that dealt with one of the serious issues of the time and Jesus knew that his reply would be minutely scrutinised. The question posed has its origin in Deuteronomy where God, through Moses, had provided legislation that would provide a degree of security to Israelite women and to control a practice that the children of Israel had no doubt adopted from their Egyptian neighbours. It was therefore God's provision for an Israelite community where, because polygamy was not forbidden, divorce was not sought in order that a man could marry another woman. 
Jesus was fully aware of this, so in his reply, he explained the reason why the legislation had been provided. Jesus made it quite clear that Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, was laid down for a definite situation only. The authorities that he quoted, however, went back much further, right back to the beginning, and he quoted Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, and 2, verse 24, explaining that marriage was intended to be permanent. The real essence of the passage is that Jesus insisted that the loose sexual morality of his day must be mended. Those who seek marriage only for pleasure must be reminded that marriage is also for responsibility. Those who regarded marriage simply as a means of gratifying their physical passions are here reminded that it was also a spiritual unity that requires constant nurturing. And as such, Jesus was building a protective rampart around the home. Verses 13 to 16. Of such is the kingdom of heaven. They brought little children to Jesus that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw what they were doing, he was vexed and said to them, Let the little children come to me and don't try to stop them, for of such is the kingdom of God. This is the truth I tell you. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will not enter into it. And he took them up in the crook of his arm and blessed them and laid his hands on them. It was, we understand, customary for Jewish mothers to wish their children to be blessed by a great and distinguished rabbi, especially on their first birthday. It was in this way that they brought the children to Jesus on this day. We will fully understand the almost poignant beauty of this passage only if we remember when it happened. Jesus was on his way to the cross, and he knew it. Its cruel shadow can never have been far from his mind, and now it was even closer. It was at such a time that he made time for the children. Even with such a tension in his mind that he made time to take them in his arms, and he had the heart to smile into their faces and maybe to play with them a while. The disciples were not boorish and ungracious men. They simply wanted to protect Jesus. They did not quite know what was going on, but they knew quite clearly that tragedy lay ahead. And they could see the tension under which Jesus labored. They did not want him to be bothered. They could not conceive that he could want the children about him. But Jesus said, let the children come to me. Incidentally, this tells us a great deal about Jesus. It tells us that he was the kind of person who cared for children and for whom children cared. He could not have been a stern and gloomy and joyless person there must have been a kindly sunshine radiating from him. He must have smiled easily 
and laughed joyously. The commentator has said that he does not believe in a man's Christianity if the children are never to be found playing around his door. This little precious incident throws a flood of light on the human kind of person that Jesus was. Of such, said Jesus, is the kingdom of God. What is it about the child that Jesus liked and valued so much? There is the child's humility. Oh yes, we've all seen the child who is an exhibitionist. But such children are rare and often the product of misguided adult treatment. Ordinarily, the child is embarrassed by prominence and publicity. He or she has not yet learned to think in terms of place and pride and prestige. He's not yet learned to discover the importance of himself. There is the child's obedience. <clears throat> True, a child is often disobedient, but paradox though it may seem, his natural instinct is to obey. He's not yet learned the pride and the false independence that separate a man from his fellow man and from God. And there is the child's trust. That is seen in two things. It is seen in the child's acceptance of authority. There is a time when he thinks his father knows everything and that his father is always right. To our dismay, he soon grows out of that, but instinctively the child realises his own ignorance and his own helplessness and trusts the one who, as he thinks, knows. It is seen in the child's confidence in other people. He does not expect any person to be bad. He will make friends with a perfect stranger. A great man once said that the greatest compliment ever paid to him was when a little boy came up to him, complete stranger, and asked him to tie his shoelace. The child has not yet learned to suspect and mistrust the world. He still believes the best about others. Tragically, that very trust has led some into danger, for there are those who are totally un unworthy of it and who abuse it. But that trust is a lovely thing. The child has a short memory. He has not yet learned to bear grudges and nourish bitterness, even when he is unjustly treated. And who among us is not sometimes unjust to his children? The child forgets, and forgets so completely that he does not even need to forgive. Indeed, of such, said Jesus, is the kingdom of God. Verses 17 to 22. How much do you want goodness? As Jesus was going along the road, a man came running to him and threw himself at his feet and asked him, Good teacher, what am I to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? There is no one who is good except one, God. You know the commandments. You must not kill. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not bear false witness. You must not defraud anyone. 
You must honour your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these from my youth. When Jesus looked at him, he loved him. And he said to him, You still lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But he was grieved at this saying, and he went away in sadness, for he had many possessions. Here is one of the most vivid of stories in the Gospels. We must note how the man came and how Jesus met him. He came running. He knelt at Jesus' feet. And there was something amazing in the sight of this rich young aristocrat falling at the feet of the penniless prophet from Nazareth who was on his way to being an outlaw. Good teacher, he began. And straight away Jesus answered back. No flattery. Don't call me good. Keep that word for God. It looks almost as if Jesus was trying to freeze him and to pour cold water on that young enthusiasm. But there is a lesson here. It is clear that this man came, came to Jesus in a moment of overflowing emotion. It is also clear that Jesus exercised a personal fascination over him. Jesus did two things that we ought to remember and to copy. First, he said, in effect, stop and think. You're all wrought up and palpitating with emotion. I don't want you swept to me by a moment of emotion. Think calmly what you are doing. Jesus was not freezing the man. He was telling him, even at the very outset, to count the cost. Second, he said in effect, you cannot earn salvation by cultivating a sentimental passion for me. You must look at God. Preaching and teaching always mean the conveying of truth through personality. And therein lies the greatest danger of the greatest teachers. The danger is that the pupil, the scholar, the young person may form a personal attachment to the teacher or the preacher and think that it is an attachment to God. The teacher and the preacher must never point to himself. He must always point to God. There is, in all true teaching, a certain self-obliteration. True, we cannot keep personality and warm personal loyalty out of it altogether, and we would not if we could. But the matter must not stop there. The teacher and the preacher are in the last analysis only finger posts to God. Never did any story so lay down the essential truth that Respectability is not enough. Jesus quoted the commandments that were the basis of the decent life. And without hesitate, the man said that he kept them all. Well, note one thing. With one exception, they were all negative commandments. And that one exception operated only in the family circle. In effect, the man was saying, I never in my life did anyone any harm. 
That was perfectly true. But the real question is, what good have you done? And the question to this man was even more pointed. With all your possessions, with your wealth, and all that you could give away, what positive good have you done for others? How much have you gone out of your way to help and comfort and strengthen others as you might have done? Respectability on the whole consists in not doing things. Living the truth consists in doing things. That was precisely where this man, like so many of us, fell down. So Jesus confronted him with a challenge. In effect, he said, get out of this moral respectability. Stop looking at yourself as consisting in not doing bad things. Take yourself and all that you have and spend everything on others. Then you will find true happiness in time and in eternity. The man could not do it. He had great possessions which it had never entered his head to give away and when it was suggested to him he could not. True, he'd never stolen, he'd never defrauded anyone but neither had he been nor could he compel himself to be positively and sacrificially generous. It may be respectable never to take away from anyone it is Christian to give to someone. In reality, Jesus was confronting this man with a basic and essential question. How much do you want salvation? <clears throat> do you want it enough to give your possessions away? <coughs> and the man had to answer, in effect, I want it, but I don't want it as much as all that. <clears throat> It was the malady of not wanting enough which meant tragedy for the young man who came running to Jesus. It is the malady from which we are prone to suffer. We all want salvation, but do we want it enough to pay the price? Then it says Jesus looked at him, loved him. Oh, isn't that remarkable? There were many things in that look of Jesus it was the appeal of love. Jesus was not angry with him. He loved him too much for that. And it was not the look of anger, but the appeal of love. There was the challenge to chivalry. It was a look that sought to pull the man out of his comfortable, respectable, settled life into the adventure of seeking salvation. It was the look of grief, and that grief was the sorest grief of all. The grief of seeing a man deliberately choose not to be what he might have been, and had it in him to be. <clears throat> and Jesus looks at us with the same appeal of love, and with the challenge to accept his way. God grant that he may never have to look at us with sorrow for a loved one, who refused to be what he might have been and could have been. 
Verses 23 to 27, the peril of riches. Jesus looked round and said to his disciples, With what difficulty will those who have money enter into the kingdom of God? His disciples were amazed at his words. Jesus repeated, Children, how difficult it is for those who trust in money to enter into the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were exceedingly astonished. Who then, they said to him, can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. The ruler who had refused the challenge of Jesus had walked sorrowfully away, and no doubt the eyes of Jesus and the company of the apostles followed him until his figure receded into the distance. Then Jesus turned round and, and looked at his own men. How very difficult it is, he said, for a man who has money to enter the kingdom of God. The word used for money here is cremata, which is defined by Aristotle as all those things of which the value is measured by coinage. We may perhaps wonder why this saying so astonished the disciples. Twice their amazement is stressed. The reason for their amazement was that Jesus was turning accepted Jewish standards completely upside down. Popular Jewish morality was simple. It believed that prosperity was the sign of a good man. If a man was rich, God must have honoured and blessed him. Wealth was proof of excellence of character and of favour with God. The psalmist sums it up. I've been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging bread. That's from Psalm, 137, Psalm 37, verse 25. But no wonder the disciples were surprised. They would have argued that the more prosperous a man was, the more certain he was of entry into the kingdom. So Jesus repeated his saying in a slightly different way to make clearer what he meant. How difficult it is, he said, for those who have put their trust in riches to enter the kingdom. No one ever saw the dangers of prosperity and of material things more clearly than Jesus did. What then are these dangers? Material Material possessions tend to fix a man's heart to this world. He has so large a stake in it, he has so great an interest in it, that it is difficult for him to think beyond it, and it is especially difficult for him to contemplate leaving it. Dr. Johnson was once shown round a famous castle and its lovely grounds, and after he'd seen it all, he turned to his friends and said, these are the things that make it difficult to die. The danger of possessions is that they fix a man's thoughts and interests to this world. 
If a man's main interest is in material possessions, it tends to make him think of everything in terms of price. A hill shepherd's wife once wrote a most interesting letter to a newspaper. Her children had been brought up in the loneliness of the hills. They enjoyed simple pleasures and unsophistication. Then her husband got a position in a town and the children were introduced to the town. They changed very considerably and they changed for the worse. The last paragraph of her letter read, Which is preferable for a child's upbringing? A lack of worldliness, but with better manners and sincere and simple thoughts? Or worldliness and its present-day habit of knowing the price of everything and the true value of nothing. If our main interest is in material things, we will think in terms of price and not in terms of value. We will think in terms of what money can get, and we may well forget that there are values in this world far beyond money that are things which have no price. And there are precious things that money cannot buy. It is fatal when a man begins to think that everything worth having has a cash value. Jesus would have said that the possession of material things is two things. It is an acid test of a man. For a hundred men who can stand adversity, only one can stand prosperity. Prosperity can so very easily make a man arrogant, proud, self-satisfied, worldly. It takes a really big and good man to bear it worthily. It is a responsibility. A man will always be judged by two standards. How he got his possessions and how he uses them. The more he has, the greater the responsibility that rests upon him. Will he use what he has selfishly or generously? Will he use it as if he had undisputed possession of it? Or remembering that he holds it in stewardship from God? The reaction of the disciples was that if what Jesus was saying was true, to be saved at all is well nigh impossible. Then Jesus stated the whole doctrine of salvation in a nutshell. If, he said, if salvation depended on a man's own efforts, it would be impossible for anyone. But salvation is the gift of God and all things are possible to him. The man who trusts in himself and in his possessions can never be saved. The man who trusts in the saving power and the redeeming love of God can enter freely into salvation. This is the thought that Jesus stated. This is the thought that Paul wrote in letter after letter and is the thought that is still for us the very foundation of our faith. Verses 28 to 31. Christ is no man's debtor. Peter began to say to him, Look now, we have left everything and have become your followers. Peter's mind had been working and, characteristically, his tongue could not stay still. He had just seen a man deliberately refuse Jesus' call to follow me. 
He had just heard Jesus say, in effect, that man by his action had shut himself out from the kingdom of God. Peter could not help drawing the contrast between that man and himself and his friends. Just as the man had refused Jesus, follow me, he and his friends had accepted it. And Peter, with that almost crude honesty of his, wanted to know what he and his friends were to get out of it. Jesus' answer falls into three sections. He said that no man ever gave up anything for the sake of himself and of his good news without getting it back a hundredfold. It so happened that in the early church this was literally true. A man's Christianity might involve the loss of home and friends and loved ones, but his entry into the brotherhood brought him into a far greater and wider family than ever he had left. A family who were all spiritually kin to him. We can see the thing actually happening in the life of the Apostle Paul. No doubt when Paul accepted Christ, the door of his own home slammed in his face and his family disowned him. But equally, without doubt, there was city upon city, town upon town, village upon village in Europe and in Asia with minor where he could find a home waiting for him and a family in Christ to welcome him. It is strange how he uses the very family terms. In Romans 16, 13, he tells how the mother of Rufus was as good as a mother to him. <clears throat> in Philemon 10, he speaks of Onesimus as the son whom he had begotten in his bonds. It would be so of every Christian in the early days when his own family rejected him, he entered into the wider family of Christ. When an American missionary, Egerton Young, first preached the gospel to the Red Indians in Saskatchewan, the idea of the fatherhood of God fascinated men who had hitherto seen God only in the thunder and the lightning and the storm blast. An old chief said to Egerton Young, Did I hear you speak to God and say, Our Father? I did, said Egerton Young. God is your father, asked the chief. Yes, said Egerton Young. And went on the chief, He is also my father? He certainly is, said Egerton Young. Suddenly the chief's face lit up with a new radiance. His hand went out. Then, he said, like a man making a dazzling discovery, you and I are brothers. A man may have to sacrifice ties that are very dear in order to follow the Lord Jesus. But when he does, he becomes a member of a family and a brotherhood as wide as heaven and earth. Jesus added two things. First, he added the simple words and persecutions. Straightway, these words remove the whole matter from the world of quid pro quo, and that is to get something for something, exchanging. They take away the idea of a material reward for a material sacrifice. They tell us of two things. They speak of the utter honesty of Jesus. He never offered us an easy way. 
he told us straight that to follow him may cost us dearly. Second, they tell us that Jesus never used a bribe to make men follow him. He used a challenge. It is as if he said, certainly you will get your reward, but you will have to show yourself to be big enough and a gallant enough adventurer to get it. The second thing that Jesus added was the idea of the world to come. He never promised that within this world of space and time there would be a kind of squaring up of the balance sheet and settlement of accounts. He did not call us to win the rewards of time. He called us to earn the blessings of eternity. God has not only this age in which he can repay. Then Jesus added one warning epigram. Many who are first shall be last, and the last first. This was possibly a warning to the disciples, but it's also a warning for us now. It may well be that by this time, the disciples were estimating their own worth and their own reward and assessing them high. What Jesus was saying was, the final standard of judgment rests with God. Many a man may stand well in the judgment of this world, but the judgment of God may upset the world's judgment. Still more, <clears throat> many a man may stand well in his own judgment and find that God's evaluation of him is very different. It is a warning against all pride. It is a warning that the ultimate judgment belongs to God, who alone knows the motives of our hearts. It is a warning that the judgments of our Heavenly Father may well upset the reputations of earth. So, with these thoughts in mind, let us resolve never to presume upon the grace that is offered to us, but serve our Lord that we may partake of the emblems of his sacrifice acceptably, as he commanded.